And you turn with me to Philippians in chapter 2. Now, we started looking at this previously, spending a few weeks on these verses of the Christ hymn in Philippians 2. Let's pray before we read together. pray together. O Lord God, please send the Holy Spirit to take your words. I pray that it would penetrate the distractions, the distortions, the lie, the temptations of the world that have calloused our hearts. As we bow before you, I pray that your Holy Spirit would work by your word incisively, cutting through these calluses. Would you come and perform surgery upon us by the ministry of the word this afternoon. I pray that you'll draw sinners to the Lord Jesus. Teach us to hate the world and flee our own rebellion and remain in corruption to obedience and dependence only on him. Would you display the glory, the beauty, the excellency, the sufficiency of our Saviour, in whose name we pray. Amen. So Philippians 2, and I'll start from verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort in, from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves, that each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. We praise the Lord that he's spoken to us in the reading of his holy and inerrant words. So this afternoon we're returning to our expositions in Paul's letter to the Philippians. And I want us to focus on verses 5 to 11. Last time we looked at verses 1 to 4. And Paul has been calling the Philippian believers to unity and humility as they partner together with him, as he says in chapter 1, verse 27, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And if you remember just, I think it was two weeks ago, the first four verses of chapter 2, Paul has been calling us to scrutinise our own hearts, our own attitudes, especially towards one another in the fellowship of the church, to consider whether we are prepared 
to take on the servant posture. And if you remember two weeks ago, I mentioned the image that Kent Hughes brought out in his commentary about the orchestra. And the, the, the director of the orchestra being asked, what is the hardest position to fill in the orchestra? And the answer came back as quick as a flash, second fiddle, second violin. Because everyone wants to be first violin. Someone who, who's prepared to play second fiddle or to play second violin is the hard spot to find. But without the second violin, there is no music. Because without the second violin, there is no harmony. So Paul's exhortation in verses 1 to 4 is, are you prepared to play second violin? Are you prepared to be a support? Are you prepared to be a servant to your brothers and sisters for the sake of the harmony of the people of God? And the exhortations are challenging and searching. Look at what he calls us to again. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to his own interest, but to the interest of others. They're convicting to read. So it is a mark of Paul's extraordinary pastoral wisdom in 5 to 11 that he exhorted us plainly, clearly and piercingly, but then he takes our gaze away from ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's though he comes and sees us and sees our heads go down as his exhortations challenge our consciences. And he puts our hands under our chin and lifts them up and takes our eyes and turns our attention on the one from whom the grace that we need to begin to live like this proceeds. In other words, he points us to Jesus. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Look to Jesus. Now, Lord's, Lord willing, next Sunday eve afternoon, we'll come back to this passage and look at it in some more detail. But I want to focus just on verses 5 to 8 this afternoon, where Paul takes us to the cross, where Paul takes us to Christ's humiliation, the sufferings of Jesus. And this is the embodiment and paragon, this is the template of the graces and characteristics that Paul is seeking to produce in the lives of the Philippians, for which he exhorts us in those opening four verses. As we look at verses 5 to 8, please notice three things with me. The pattern that Christ sets, the pattern that Jesus sets, the promise that Christ establishes, the promise, so the pattern, the promise, and finally the, pri the praise that Christ requires. Three Ps, pattern, promise, and praise. The pattern that Christ sets us, the promise that he establishes, and the praise that he requires. So first of all, the pattern that Christ sets. Most of us, at least if you're like me, we learn from a combination of things. A combination of principles, examples, instruction, concrete modelling, and examples of the kind of thing that we've been asked to believe or live. 
We need the exhortation. We need the example. So verses 1 to 4, we have the exhortation. Verses 5 to 8, we have the example in the life of Jesus. And if you ask Paul what it means to do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility to count others as better than ourselves. What does it look like, Paul? In concrete terms, to look not to our own interests, but to the interests of others. If you asked Paul that question, his answer would be, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's what it means, Paul says, to be selfless and servant-hearted. So Christ is the embodiment of the exhortations in verses 1 to 4. Christ sets the pattern. So the mind that we are to have among ourselves, verse 5, is the mind we see in Christ. The attitude that he displays in these verses. If we're to be like Jesus, we need to pay attention to the pattern he sets. And look at the language he uses, Paul uses. Jesus is God. Verse 6, his form is the form of God. The contours of his being perfectly describe the contours of omnipotent deity. And this is what he always was. He was in the form of God. And yet we learn his essential equality with the Father was not something that he jealously guards as though afraid at any moment it might slip like sand through his fingers. Instead, in that security of his, his perfect equality with the Father in the bonds of the Spirit, in the unity of the Trinity, God the Son makes himself nothing. That is the language used. It's not the great translation. The translation is he emptied himself, which is a dramatic way to speak about utter self-abnegation for the sake of others. It does not mean that he empties himself or divests himself of deity. Have to be careful about that. Not at all. We have a robust Christology but it means he adds humanity to deity in the unity of his person. And we have to try and grasp the enormity of what that means for a moment. Yes, it is nosebleed type stuff and it's difficult to grasp, but that doesn't mean to say that we shouldn't enter into it to press in. It is impossible the union of the two natures in Christ one person. But we must ponder the mystery. We must ponder the mystery. We must press in. The infinite, eternal, unchangeable God. With a full array of his divine attributes, his wisdom, his power, his holiness, his justice, his goodness, his truth, co-equal, co-eternal with the Father and with the Spirit, immovable, immutable, unchangeable, impassable, all-knowing, all-seeing, everywhere present. God the Son takes into union with his divine nature, humanity, human nature. So God is the unchanging sovereign. What is man? 
but a finite, changeable subject. While God is impassable, undying, Lord, what is man? Well, we know man grows weary, man weeps, man bleeds, man dies. So while God is all his attributes, so he cannot be anything but perfect glory, perfect beauty, perfect power, what about a man? Well, we know a man can be ignored. A man can be rejected. A man can be despised without any form of comeliness that we should desire him. A man of sorrows acquainted with grief, one who that we might esteem stricken and smitten by God from whom men hide their faces without any of the trappings of power or the insignia of majesty. While God is without body parts or passions, a man can have nails driven into his hands. A man can have nails driven into his feet. A man can have a spear thrust into his side. While God must reign from the throne of glory, a man can lie in the tomb. So to deity is added humanity. In all that that means, without for a moment for a nanosecond, stripping himself of a single attribute of Godhead, of his divine glory and majesty. Nevertheless, Christ embraced the attributes of a man, and not just any man. Look at verse 7. And lowest and the least, Christ took the form of a doulos. A doulos a servant, a slave. God the Son took the form of a slave. And God the lawgiver, verse 8, the lawgiver, God the lawgiver, verse 8, the lawgiver becomes obedient and submits himself to the brutality of an unjust magistrate and the lawlessness of wicked men and becomes obedient even unto death. And what a death! He didn't, he didn't die peace, peaceably. He didn't, you know, I was talk, talking to someone this morning about my father-in-law dying. He died in his sleep. Jesus died a death that was reserved for slaves and criminals. God in flesh is crucified. He dies. So the one who is the Word, who was with God and was God, by whom all things were made, without whom nothing was made that has been made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. He dies at the hands of those he created. And all of this he chose. He chose. He humbled himself. He chose it. He embraced it. He went, he opted for it for you. The filth of our sin, the horror and the ugliness of our condemnation, bearing down on Jesus as the Father poured out his wrath on the Son, instead of on us. That is, 
Is it not the supreme demonstration of selfless humility and love? You see why this, this is, this is, there is no example like it. That's why Paul's answer is Jesus. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Nothing reserved, nothing come back, kept back, nothing out of bounds. And that is the pattern to which we're being called to conform our lives. Have this mind among yourselves, verse 5, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This is what it looks like. So what does that mean? We don't reserve anything for self. We surrender all for the glory of Christ and for the good of our brothers and sisters. That is the pattern that Paul is calling us to. Yes, it's radical, it's complete. It is the perfect picture of self-sacrifice and there can be no moderation or degrees acceptable in it. This is a call to the life of sold-out surrender to the will and the word of God. Moderate obedience, managed obedience, is another word for disobedience. Lukewarm Christianity is unacceptable. Christ will vomit such out of his mouth. If anyone would come up to after me, he says, he didn't say take it easy, don't overdo it. We wouldn't want you to exert yourself. He said, if anyone would come after me, let him pick up his cross and follow me. A call to come and die. That it, that's what it means to be a disciple. The complete possession of your life by Christ. So that's the pattern that Jesus sets. Secondly, the promise that he establishes. Look at verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Paul is not only saying, let me tell you what the mind of Christ is like and let me exhort you to do what it takes as far as you're able, resting on the help of the Holy Spirit to become more like that. Well, he is saying that, but he's saying much more. He's saying the mind to which you must conform the pattern of your life is your birthright. It has been made out to you in Christ. So if you're in Christ, this is not only the pattern to which we must aspire, but the pattern and template into which God is conforming you by his spirit and through the means of grace. I couldn't really think of a, a better way to describe this about being a citizen in another country. And of course, you, most of you know I'm waiting to move to the States, become more poignant these last couple of weeks. But I, I spent 16 years living in Vienna in a very fond time of it, you know, as I think back on it, the Lord was so kind in, um, in, in the people I met and the opportunities that I had. But one of the things that I used to look forward to in coming back to Blighty, coming back to the UK, was that it finally I'd be understood. Because people didn't understand me very much. So you can imagine my distress after about six years of those 16. I get back to England, go and sit in a church service, and someone sits next to me in church and said, so where are you from in America? Um, it, they told me that I sounded like an American. I must have picked up some of the... I mean, if you listen to Zachary now, he sounds as American, as American, as American. But this is my point. Where you live changes you. Where you live changes you. How you sound, how you act, how you behave. Your country changes you. When you live in a new country, it changes you. And Paul is saying, if you're a Christian, you live in a new country. You live in Christ. So Christ is our environment and he changes you. 
If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. So if you're in Christ this afternoon, it changes you. It changes you so that you're more like him. And the mind that you're to have is ours in Christ in union with Christ. It is a promise. It is a promise. And we should take comfort from that promise because as I look at myself, I see how far, far I fall short. And it's easy to grow weary in doing good. To be discouraged that there's so much corruption in me. So much sin still to slay. What progress has been made? But Paul says no. And this is remarkable. This mind is yours in Christ. He is at work in you to will and to do his good pleasure. You are being transformed from glory unto glory in the image by the Lord who is the Spirit. You see, it means if I can press that point a little further, that the renovation of your life at the deepest level of who you are only happens in union with Christ. There is no Christianity, there is no godliness, there is no obedience that pleases God outside of Christ. See, religion, morality, is, is as damnable as rebellion if it isn't in Christ. It's the new country that he has come, that you've come to dwell within, changing you. So before we aspire to be like him, we must aspire to be in him. So let me exhort you to come to Christ, trusting only in him. You access union with Christ by faith. Trust in his work in your place as your representative, as your substitute, dying for you, obeying for you, paying for you. And as you rest on him, as you trust in him, as you cling to him, you come into union with him. You enter a new country and the country changes you by the grace of God. So are you in Christ, the promise that is ours? And thirdly, the praise that Christ requires. Now many scholars and commentators say that this is a hymn that Paul is quoting here, it's called the Christ hymn. And I find that remarkable because it's rich theology. It's a hymn of praise to Christ. Notice how it concludes, every tongue confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's a certain cadence to it. There's a certain, you, know, there is, you can see there's a hymnology to it in some ways. But these are the twin fruits of union with Christ. Consecration of life and adoration of lips always go together. And uh, I might say that a, a Christian who does not sing is a contradiction in terms. It's an oxymoron. Now, we have more reason to sing than anyone, do we not? And I'm not saying you know, that, you know, that you have to sing like Pavarotti, but I'm, I'm making the point that a Christian that does not sing is a contradiction in terms. Look at what Christ has done. Look at how much he loves you. I think that Paul would ask a Christian who does not sing, have you lingered long enough at Calvary? Have you stayed at Calvary long enough? How can you not sing? Would be his question. 
If you think about the hymns that Charles Wesley wrote, how could you not say with him, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise, the glories of my God and King, the triumphs of his grace. And their lip service will not do either. He wants your praise. So if you are in Christ, you must sing, not because you sound good. We are to sing because Christ died to make you a worshipper. He died to make you a worshipper. But mere lip service will not do. See, there's the consecration of our lives. And there is the praise of our lips. They must always go together. So he wants us to aspire to holiness. And they're the twin evidences that you're a man or a woman in Christ. So will you surrender your life for the honour and the glory of Jesus who surrendered his all for you. You can see now why he is worthy of our praise. He alone is worthy of our praise. So the pattern, the pattern that Christ sets, the promise that he gives to those that are in him, but he alone is worthy of our praise. The consecration of our lives, the adoration of our lips. Would you surrender your life for the honour and the glory of the one who surrendered all for you? And will you devote yourself to the praise of the glory of his grace and sing in his praise as you take in the wonders of his grace? Would you pray with me as we close? Heavenly Father, we do give thanks for Jesus, for his atoning work that he purchased for himself a people from every tribe, language and nation. That he is our new environment, as it were. We have come to live in him. So we pray that you would conform us to his likeness. Help us to sing, not only with our lips, but with the adoration of our hearts and the consecration of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.